You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Faith is something that God gives to us as a gift by His grace whereby we believe that he exists, but not just that he exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is drawing near to God and seeking him as a rewarder of those who do draw near. So a question you might have today, or maybe you've asked this uh, in the past, is does my faith please God? Do I have a, a, a faith that pleases God? And what would faith look like that pleases God? Another question you might ask is it this way, what does drawing near to God look like in my life right now? You may be going through a wonderful moment, a great season of your life, or you may be going through a very dark season of your life. But what does drawing near to God look like for you right now in a way that would please God? Today we're going to be looking at a surprising example of faith. And a surprising warning of faith in the same chapter. So that's actually our structure. Surprising example and a surprising warning. What I'm going to do is just read two large passages out of this chapter and give some brief commentary about uh, what we can observe there about faith. And then bring it together with three essential truths that we have to know about faith that pleases God. So let's first look at the surprising example from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1 with a man named Naaman. Here we go. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times 
and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That's a, that's a large section. That's, a, that's a, a, a powerful story, really, where Naaman, because of childlike faith, is restored and, and cleaned, and uh, his leprosy leaves him, and then he has the flesh like a little child, just like his faith was weak and childlike. And it's, it's amazing because the first thing we observe is that Naaman is a powerful man. He's not used to being in a position like this. He was a commander, we're told, of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man, we're told, with high favor because the Lord was with him. And he would given him victory uh, to Syria through Naaman. We're told that he was a mighty man of valor, but then we're also told that he was a leper. And so the, the thing that is most prominent about Naaman in this moment is not all his achievements, but this contagious disease of death that he has. He is a leper. Uh, Jewish cultural scholars talk about leprosy this way. It begins with pain in certain areas of the body, and then numbness follows. And then soon the skin in such spots lose its color and it gets thick and glossy and scaly. And the skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begin to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings. And then we're told that fingers and toes would drop off or be absorbed. Then the throat becomes hoarse. And if you can now not only see and feel and smell the leper, you can hear his rasping voice as it spreads. And if you stay with them for some time, you can even imagine a particular taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. This is how desperate it is for Naaman. Naaman is powerful. He is a mighty, powerful man. But in this moment, he is desperate. So just, just consider it like an Ebola outbreak. doesn't matter how powerful you are, if you have Ebola and it is spreading across your body, you are in a desperate state. And that's what Naaman is. He knows he's in a desperate place. He feels his desperation. And notice also in the story how God relentlessly pursues a desperate Naaman with a powerful promise. Notice all the details here of how God gets the promise to Naaman that he's going to heal him. Look at verse 2. The Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. <laughs> this character in the story is amazing. She's like the linchpin. She's like the hero of this entire story. This poor girl that got carried off. And it's just tragic how this whole messy scenario takes place. As she gets carried off from the land of Israel. And she's there serving the Syrians. And she actually ends up working 
in the service of Naaman's wife. What a coincidence. But it's not a coincidence because God is superintending sovereignly all the events that are taking place. In verse 3, she says to her mistress, it could be a casual conversation, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman's wife hears this, tells Naaman, Naaman goes and tells the king, and all of this is God's sovereign and surprising mercy just showing up and making sure that that Naaman gets the promise that he is going to give him. It's God pursuing Naaman in all these supernatural, sovereign ways. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked back on your life and said, I don't know how that happened to me, how, how the, that hope came to me, or how the gospel came to me through all these surprising ways that I couldn't have scripted and created for myself. Well, Naaman couldn't have scripted this. It just, it just happened as it happened, but it's God scripting over it. And so then he tells the king, and then the king says, Listen, look at this mercy. The king says, go, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. But then the king of Syria gets it wrong. He sends this letter over to the king and tells the, the king of Israel to heal him. And, uh, and then that king you know, starts to freak out. He says, am I a God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure the man of the leprosy? He's seeking a quarrel with me. So like, a battle, a war could potentially be brewing in the midst of all of this, all owing to a mistake. And yet God, God sees through that. And Elisha catches wind of this. Elisha hears that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. The modern translation of tearing your clothes is to freak out. Like I said, that's just the king is freaking out. And the, the king says, or he sent a message to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Why are you freaking out? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots in verse 9 and stood at the door of Elisha's house. You see God's mercy just relentlessly pursuing Naaman through all this messy scenario. And it only gets messier. Elisha doesn't come out to the commander. He doesn't come out to Naaman. And Naaman's not used to this. This is very odd behavior for Naaman to, to not have somebody come and greet him, especially when he's coming with horses and chariots and all of this stuff to Elisha's house. Well, Elisha treats Naaman like the leper that he is, and he sends a messenger out to him, and he says, here's what God says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And notice, Naaman just drops the ball here in verse 11. Naaman's angry, went away, saying, behold, I thought that he would come out to me, and he'd wave his hand. And, uh, and, and just cure me this way. I mean, after all, isn't, you know, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than jo the Jordan, all the waters of Israel? Can I, can I wash in them and be clean? And so then he turns away and enraged. You notice that? Like he's angry. But his servants, God, God not only sent Naaman this little girl, but then he sends these servants to come near to the commander to Naaman and says, you know, my father, it's a great word that the prophet's spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Will you not just, you know, uh, trust what the prophet has spoken? Will you not just give it the good old college try, Naaman? You know, they convinced Naaman and Naaman is convinced. Listen, God pursues sovereignly in surprising ways with mercy, pursues Naaman 
And then Naaman acts on the promise. However it arrives, however that promise, you go to that Jordan, you dip down seven times, and your flesh is going to be healed and you're going to be restored. However that came to Naaman, Naaman acts on it. Naaman believes and he acts on the promise. And this kind of clues us in on what faith is. To act on the promise that God gives. He goes down, he dips himself seven times. Not five, not six, but seven in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And notice that his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And leprosy flies away from him. It doesn't exist anymore in his life. He is healed. A miracle has taken place uh, among an unlikely candidate for a miracle. A Syrian, a person that was outside of the kingdom of God. And a leper... Somebody that you're not supposed to touch. Somebody that you're not supposed to get near because they're not only physically unclean but spiritually unclean as well. And this is, this is how God operates. God's grace is free and miraculous and powerful. And Naaman gets healed when he acts on the promise of just trusting God at his word. And it's a surprising example. We're not supposed to see Naaman healed in this story. And it's equally surprising the example that follows. There's a warning of what takes place in this next section. And it involves a guy named Gehazi, who we were introduced to last week. He's the servant of Naaman, and he is going to be a warning to us. Verse 15 says, Then he returned to the man of God. This is Naaman. And he and all his company. And he came, and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, well, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and he tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. And he laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand 
and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. And he went in, and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. I mean, the judgment that was supposed to be Naaman's, that was on Naaman, becomes the judgment upon Gehazi. This reversal of fortune and this reversal of judgment takes place as Gehazi now becomes not the example, but the surprising warning of not trusting God. Well, what do we know about Gehazi? Well, we know that Gehazi has seen and known and experienced God's grace maybe more than any person in that day and in that land. He had a front row seat to the greatest prophet perhaps to ever have lived who's exercising and, and ministering and speaking about the greatest grace to ever exist in the God Yahweh. He has seen a dead boy brought back to life. We saw that last week in the last chapter. He has seen... Uh, something poisonous become edible by a miracle. He has seen a hundred people uh, eat and have their fill on just a little bit as God has multiplied that miraculously. He has seen miracle after miracle and much, much more as he has followed and served Elisha all his life. And how did Gehazi even get to the place that he got to? We don't know his story. We don't know his background, but he got this privileged place, this privileged status, and he gets to see and witness the grace of God in so many ways. And what he knows about the grace of God, he knows grace cannot be bought, it can't be purchased, it can't be earned, it can't be achieved, for Elisha and Elijah before him have spoken that and communicated that over and over and over again. And this is what he resists the most. Elisha does not like, I mean, Gehazi does not like Elisha's word to Naaman. Naaman comes to him. He's confused about God's grace and he's trying to give him a present. He says, behold, I know that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And to make sure that Naaman doesn't get grace confused as a work, he resists it. Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. Why? Because Elisha wants to make sure Naaman understands that God's grace is free of charge and must be received by faith. This is what grace is. It's receiving God's gift by faith, by trust, and not by works. Not by paying, not by earning, not by working, not by achieving. And this goes against the grain of everything Naaman has understood about how you receive anything in life. And so he is saying, I'm not going to receive anything. And, and, and then Naaman urged him to take it, but he still refused. Well, Gehazi understands this, and he knows it mentally, but there is a heart disconnection in Gehazi. It's possible to know a lot about God, 
but not trust God personally. And this is what seems to be Gehazi's story. He has seen much, but he has trusted none. Gehazi doesn't personally trust in God's grace. Do you hear his language? See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, the outsider, the exile, the person away from God, the person not in the privileged status that I have had all of my life, outside of the people of God, who, who he doesn't know as much as I know. He hasn't experienced all that I have experienced of God. And here, uh, Elisha's messing up. My master spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, note this is his, his vow, his oath, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. God's grace for Gehazi was not enough. He wanted what Naaman had to offer. He wanted the mules and the dirt and the changes of clothes or whatever it is that Naaman had to offer. And so then he goes and he lies to Naaman. Do you notice that? It wasn't even a really good lie. It's just this really weird concocted story. And, uh, but Naaman takes him at what he has said and gives to him what, not only what he asks for but more. I mean, Naaman is now the generous one. Naaman is giving and giving and he is generous as his heart has been transformed by grace. While Gehazi is the taker. And then he goes back home. And then he, he lies to Elisha. And you notice what happens. He says, where have you been, Gehazi? And this is another bad lie. He says to him, well, your servant went nowhere. Right? That's a terrible lie. Right? Like if your, parent, if your kids come home, parents, and... You ask them, where have you been? And they say, well, nowhere. I haven't been anywhere. You know they're lying, right? That's like a total lie. So if, if you at least try, right? Like that's, you didn't even try on that one. Of course you've been somewhere. You've been up to something. Tell me where you've been. Be clear. Well, Gehazi doesn't have a story. He's not clear because he's hiding something. He has been up to no good. And it's a, it's a really kind of comical story. It's hard to even read it and not laugh until you get to verse 26, right? Because then like this incredible judgment comes. In verse 26, Elisha says, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants? In other words, you are trampling on the grace that you have witnessed and experienced all your life. You are doing harm to the message of God's free and loving grace to Naaman by taking from him. And he, and he says, not just, he's not just this cold prophet. He says, my heart went with you when you did that. It, it would be wrong to think of Elisha as somebody who's just unmoved by all of this. For God is not uh, unmoved by judgment. Do you remember when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss? And Jesus says to him, Judas, this was his friend. This was his disciple. This is, he washed the feet of Judas. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So all the outward expression of allegiance, but a heart that's far from Jesus. That's Gehazi. And let me tell you, that's people today. And they're all around our city and all around North Dallas. Some outward Appearance, some outward 
allegiance, but heart far from God. Knowing a lot about God. Having much exposure to God. But not personally trusting in God's grace for themselves. That's Gehazi's story. Gehazi witnessed God's grace through the greatest prophet in the world and never pursued God. And it's tragic. And then God brings judgment to Gehazi. Verse 27. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants. This curse falls upon Gehazi in an instant, in a moment, and then it just continues on. And so then he goes out from his presence. Notice, a leper like snow. That's the last word that we have of this chapter is this word of judgment. It's terrifying, isn't it? The leprosy, it swallowed him up like snow. I mean, you can actually physically see how bad the leprosy spread upon Gehazi's unbelief and his greed as he's turned away from God's grace. Even though God had shown Gehazi much grace. And just like the prophet, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 33 tells us, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And although Gehazi had seen much, he never turned. And he never lived because he never turned towards God. And so he just goes and experiences judgment. Even in this moment, he doesn't seem to turn to God. As he brings judgment upon Gehazi's greed. Well, what does this teach us? What does this teach us about a faith that pleases God? Well, if we go back to the story of Naaman, we we can see something that's very hopeful, I think. And it's first that saving faith in the Bible is never described as perfect faith. And it's because we are broken, sinful people who God touches his grace down upon and starts to transform us from the inside out. Second Corinthians describes it this way, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's God's grace giving us faith, shining out and And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, but that shining out from our hearts. But we're told in the same passage that we have this treasure, this deposit that God has put there in jars of clay. In in these fragile clay pots. Meaning uh, we're weak. We're weak vessels. That's what a jar of clay is. It's a weak vessel. And it's done that way to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that's Naaman's faith. Naaman's faith is a real faith, a genuine faith, but it's in a jar of clay. It's in a clay pot. Naaman's faith, if you'll remember, is a confused faith. He doesn't understand everything. He doesn't get it. It's a reluctant faith at times. I mean, he's doubting at times. Even to the point where he is like raging and he is angry and yet it's genuine and yet it's true. It's, it's no less true even though he, it comes out in these doubtful and angry ways. He still trusts. He still puts his faith in Yahweh and believes the word of the prophet. His faith is a weak faith throughout this uh, chapter. Even after He is healed. Look at verse 17. It says, he says to 
Elisha, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. That's the transforming work of grace in his life. But then he goes on to say in verse 18, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm. In other words, when I'm, I'm serving Yahweh and I'm not serving these gods. But when I go to the house of Ramon with my boss and he is leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Ramon out of respect for him. When I'm there doing that, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And you would... You might think, well, with such weak faith, the prophet should rebuke, the prophet should correct, but the prophet doesn't do that. The prophet says, go in peace. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't correct him because his faith is real and his faith is genuine. It's weak, but it's genuine. And genuine faith, real faith, pleases God. Even a confused faith, even a reluctant faith, it pleases God. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says it this way. It shows... This moment where he's saying, I don't know quite how to do this, you know, in pleasing my master. He says, it shows a sensitive conscience. Here's a man who feels the rub between his exclusive allegiance to Yahweh and the expectations of his workplace. How many of us are feeling that rub right now? Your allegiance to Christ and these challenges of the expectations of the workplace where you're trying to live for Jesus in a difficult place. God sees it. God knows that. And your faith may feel weak in that. But it's still genuine faith as you lean in on God and lean in on the promises of God. He says, here's a man who feels a rub between his exclusive allegiance to Yahweh and his, the expectations of his workplace. It bothers him. God had simply transformed Naaman. Naaman not only lost his leprosy that day in the Jordan, he lost his paganism as well. God's transforming work leaves traces in its wake. Have you ever seen like the, the, a slow, very slow moving uh, boat, you know, coming across the river or across the lake or something? And, and then e even when the boat's far away, there's still these ripples, these traces of awake. And, and some of us may feel like, man, my faith is so weak. How could God be pleased with the wake that it's making? And yet he is pleased. We're told of Jesus in Matthew 12 that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What that means is what was useless in that day, like a bruised reed. As soon as a, a reed was bruised, you would just snap it in half and throw it away because it was useless. No, no sense in even messing with it anymore. Or a smoldering wick just had a, a few sparks but, and too much smoke for just a little bit of fire on that wick. So just snuff it out. It's useless. And you could look at Naaman and say, well, he's a Syrian and he's an outcast already and he's got leprosy. Snuff it out. Get rid of it. It's a bruised reed. Toss it out. But a bruised reed Jesus will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench as they come to him in faith. He welcomed the bruised prostitutes and the smoldering wicks of tax collectors and lepers and outcasts and pagans and the poor and the weak. And he said, anybody who comes to me, I will in no way cast out if you come to me humbly and needy and desperate like a Naaman. 
If you come to me, no matter what your faith looks like, I'm pleased by that. And that's how the kingdom is birthed and grown and advances. Jesus builds his kingdom from bruised reeds. And he makes flames from smoldering wicks. So you could say, man, I'm just a, I'm a small spark. And listen, all Jesus needs is to blow on that small spark and a flame takes off from there. And I believe that he wants to do that for some today. Is to blow his peace and his grace and his love on you. So that you would know that he is with you and he's not going to snuff you out. Even though you feel like your faith is so weak. He's pleased by weak faith as much as strong faith. We're also told that, listen, faith always involves trusting God and his word in humility. To trust God is to trust God in his word. You can't separate those two things. To, to, to approach God humbly means to trust his word obediently. When Jesus starts his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he unrolls God's word. He, he unrolls the physical scroll in the temple. And he finds Isaiah 61 and he puts his finger on Isaiah 61 where it says that the Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And at that time, everybody's saying, it's, we're told that everybody's marveling at the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. Until Jesus brings up this story of Naaman. We're told right after that, he says, But I, in truth I tell you that there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, the outcast. And then he says, and then there were lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And we're told as soon as they hear about Naaman the Syrian, about God's grace to that kind of person, and not God's grace to the people who had seen so much and known so much but trusted so little, they were filled with wrath. What was, oh, his gracious words. Now we're filled with wrath and rage. And they rose up to drive him out of town. They brought him to the brow of the hill. They sought to kill him and to throw him off the cliff. And Jesus escapes from them. And so it just becomes this angry mob as soon as he brings up Naaman. And that's because for all of their pomp and circumstance and all that, that they had seen, the people of God had rejected God just like Gehazi had. Gazi knew a lot about God, but didn't trust him personally and walked out on grace and invited judgment into his life. Naaman, on the other hand, as weak as his faith is, trusts God and experiences the blessing of God and the happiness of God. And all of uh, you know, Naaman's problems go away when he simply takes God at his word. Remember, that's what we sang just a, a few minutes ago, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. So many anxieties disappear when we trust God at his word and simply take him at his promises. When Naaman finally does that, peace comes, joy comes, healing comes. 
Charles Spurgeon says, The happiest of all Christians are those who simply take God at his word simply as it stands. I wonder if the Lord would want some of us today to step into greater peace and that some of our anxieties would go away, not all, but some, simply by trusting God and taking God at his word the way Naaman does. That's, that's the essence of faith. It's, it's the object of our faith is Jesus, and we cannot separate Jesus' words from his person. And we, we take him at his word, and, and we trust in Jesus. And lastly, faith trusts in Jesus alone to do what only he can do. To do the impossible. Early in his ministry in Mark, a leper comes to Jesus. And here's how he comes. He comes imploring him, kneeling to him, and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. He comes humbly. He comes repentant. He comes needy. He comes desperate. He comes like Naaman. And it says, moved with Pity. That's how Jesus feels when we come to him like that. He's moved. He's moved. If you want to move the, the heart of the Lord, it's coming to him like that. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That's how quick leprosy runs away when Jesus speaks a word uh, to it. And so the, the leprosy leaves him and he's made clean. And so Jesus does the impossible. But that was just a picture of what he would do at the cross when he would take our leprous condition upon himself. and He would be made a curse for us so that leprosy would be removed from us. The separation, not just the physical separation, but the spiritual separation. We are separated from the God of love because of our law-breaking sin. And at the cross, Jesus takes our judgment, the judgment of Gehazi upon himself. And he is made white with the snow of our leprosy and our judgment and our evil and our decisions and all of that. He takes responsibility for that on the cross so that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus and comes desperate and comes repentant like Naaman, we get his righteousness placed upon us. And it's, this, it's a righteousness that's described as brighter and cleaner than the judgment that Jesus takes from us. We're told in Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The last word of our chapter because of Jesus is a snow not of judgment, of leprosy or spiritual separation, but a snow of righteousness that brings about reconciliation with the God of love. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Uh, listen to this quote from Dillard. Listen to this quote. He says, the book's out in the lobby. He says, wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy. What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, Maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your trust in and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sin, resurrection from the dead, 
and eternal life. Now that beats all. The weakest faith that taps in on that promise, that acts on the promise of that, gets in on all of that. And that's for today. Your faith may be weak. Your faith may be small. Your faith may be frustrated. Your faith may be doubtful. But if you act on the promise and you put your faith in Jesus, you get a renewed life now. You get forgiveness from all sin. You get resurrection from the dead in the future. And you get eternal life. And you will escape any and all judgment that we deserve. And that is amazing. I I read this earlier. Hear this. Come now, God says. Let us reason together. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, though we deserve punishment and judgment because of our Gehazi decisions and behaviors, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The innocence of Jesus placed over us because of the love of God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.